Thank you for listening to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. For copyright and disclaimers, as well as information about how to contact the iCritical Care staff, please listen to the notice at the end of this podcast. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Savell, Associate Professor of Clinical Medicine and Neurology at the Albert Einstein College of Medicine here in New York City. Joining us today is Dr. Constantine A. Manthus, MD, FACP, FCCP. He is an Associate Professor of Medicine at the Yale University School of Medicine in New Haven, and he is Director of the Internal Medicine Residency, as well as Director of the Medical Intensive Care Unit at Bridgeport Hospital in Bridgeport, Connecticut. Dr. Manthus wrote an article in Critical Care Medicine entitled, Why Not Physician-Assisted Death?, the reference is Critical Care Medicine, 2009, Volume 37, Number 4, page 1206. Um, this was a fascinating article. There were some interesting letters to the editor, as well as an editorial, as well as Dr. Mathis's own response to those letters. And I'm very lucky to have Dr. Mathis here today to discuss his article. Thank you so much, Dr. Mathis, for being here. Well, thank you for having me. Well, um, as I said before, I wanted to take a couple of minutes and just introduce things myself and then let you take it from there. This was a, a controversial area bringing up, as you emphasize, almost as your central thesis, strong emotions. But I thought today would primarily be an opportunity for you to clarify some of the important issues that you that you raised in your manuscript. And again, what I wanted to emphasize for the listeners is what we are not talking about is your personal beliefs, and what we're not talking about is, in general, the critically ill patient who's maxed out on two pressors, on 100% oxygen, who has clearly delineated in uh, a living will, and there's a healthcare proxy that, after an appropriate amount of time, they wish heroic measures to be stopped. That's not what we're talking about. And so what I thought I'd let you begin with today are two issues. One is give us a little bit of background about why you chose to write this article because I think that's particularly fascinating. And then I want to take a, a couple of moments and go over definitions. And I've got some definitions written down on paper here, but if we could hammer those out a little bit before we get into it, that might be terrific. Okay. Uh, so just to start, um, the, the, uh, what, what got me interested uh, in this uh, subject in general uh, was kind of a confluence of uh, events. I had for years been interested uh, in working with the Connecticut State Legislature to craft uh, living will statutes that are a bit more progressive. The uh, multiple other states have living wills that extend uh, the rights to draft a binding uh, advanced directives uh, well beyond the two constraints in Connecticut, which are uh, you can only have a uh, binding living will for terminal conditions and uh, for permanently unconscious conditions. I had noticed that in other states that wasn't the case, and I felt uh, that uh, that those two definitions uh, for uh, allowing advanced directives were too narrow um, and not uh, entirely useful since the word terminal um, is uh, kind of a mushy word uh, because it's, ne it's not defined in the Connecticut statute. And most clinicians aren't really exactly sure what the temporal uh, uh, time frame for um, uh, being terminal is. So 
uh, I began to uh, work with the uh, with some state legislators, um, and someone learned of that and contacted me, uh, a prominent attorney who had worked on civil rights in the past, and uh, uh, contacted me to to ask whether he could become involved, uh, and I said, "Sure, I'm glad to glad to uh, talk things over with you." Uh, but his position was that um, the state. Uh, has no uh, right to dictate uh, to individuals how they die. Um, in fact, he suggested that um, the, that the individuals should have a right to, uh, for, uh, based on uh, rights for uh, liberty, to not have their death prolonged. Um, and he was an advocate for active euthanasia. His main uh, premise was that, uh, in his fear, was that he would become demented, uh, unable to uh, make decisions on his own behalf, uh, and then would uh, die a slow death in a nursing home as his inheritance was, uh, was uh, dwindled away. And he felt that that was uh, manifestly unjust, especially since that's not the way, not the way he would want to die, nor uh, does he think it's fair that he would have to underwrite uh, his own death in that manner. Irrespective, I when I when I uh, spoke with him, I thought the whole idea was uh, was kind of kooky, and I began almost instantaneously to try to uh, distance myself uh, from that because uh, it was clear that that wasn't going to help the dialogue at the state legislature level to to get a meaningful statute uh, reform. But when I went home and I bounced it off of my wife and and some uh, very close friends, I noticed uh, that they said that that's not kooky at all. I began to ask myself the question, well, why was my first take on this uh, so negative? Well, let me, let me just interject on, on one, only one minor point. So you, just to help with the listeners, so the, the legislature, the, the issue that you were discussing was that th- this legislator person felt that people should have the right to, that the state can't, shouldn't be able to intervene at how a person passes, but the part that they may be able to regulate is physicians' involvement in that process. Though that's key, right? Well, it wasn't. This wasn't a legislator. This was a retired Sorry. attorney uh-huh. uh, who was nearing the end of life himself, um, and uh, his premise was he didn't like the state meddling in his affairs. Okay, um, and he felt that the state has no contravening interest. To prevent him from dying on his own terms. So that was his pre- that was his premise. And, and again, you know, uh, I, up until up uh, up till this point, I said to myself, I better uh, stand, steer clear of uh, of this fellow. And um, but I had been reading some work by uh, the moral psychologist uh, from uh, Hauser that I that I um, the books that I uh, note in my um, in my the bibliography or the references for the. Uh, paper, that's uh, Moral Minds, uh, and a second book called Primates and Philosophers uh, by DeWall. And there was a gr- there was, it's evident that there's a growing uh, school of thought in, in uh, psychology that uh, um, our, our moral selves are formed both as a um, combination of nature and nurture, uh, but that very strong evolutionary forces have uh, created the, the neural circuitry that we now, as a, as a uh, species human, possess. I began to wonder whether it was possible that some of my gut revulsion to euthanasia was all about 
was precisely this uh, moral psychology, because moral psychologists have it that, that humans have an initial first take that's ultra-fast. Uh, some of this is published in that article that I cite in, in Science. There's a nice review article uh, published by Hot, Halted uh, in Science in 2007. They, they discriminate between that ultra-fast, intuitive take on moral issues versus the more careful, uh, deliberate, reasoned approach to uh, moral issues that takes more time, that's conscious, that, that we do consciously and are aware of. Before we, we get into more of the discussion, and, and even, I guess, in a, a discussion of the definitions will be controversial, but let's give it a shot. Um, let me give you my take on it from trying to read in preparation for the podcast, and then you can see if you agree or disagree, and obviously this is controversial. But the first um, thing I found was talking about euthanasia by consent and that it's either voluntary euthanasia or involuntary euthanasia, voluntary euthanasia where somebody is asking or has consented, and involuntary is where someone else is making the decision for a person. But then more importantly are these three different forms of euthanasia, uh, passive, non-active, and active. Uh, This is just one definition I found, but passive euthanasia entails the withholding of common treatments or the distribution of medications such as morphine to relieve pain and invoking the principle of double effect. The second, non-active, mean withdrawing of life support. And then the third, active euthanasia, entails the use of lethal substances or forces to kill and is the most controversial. And this is, I guess, in contradistinction to assisted suicide, where the the difference is providing the means rather than actively administering the medication. And the parts that were confusing to me, and this is why I found doing these podcasts so important, is I felt that, uh, and, and we're always emphasizing this bright line and of uh, intent, but I thought that withdrawal of support was very, very, very different from this, and I thought would not come under the word euthanasia. But if you read this properly, it does. And I guess that segues nicely into some of your discussion of the emotion behind the, these charged uh, words, right? I think so, um, but, but though I would probably disagree. Uh, when I use the term euthanasia, I'm not referring to withdrawal uh, and, uh, of life support and passive uh, death, uh, even with comfort care. I would uh, suggest that euthanasia more properly is uh, acceleration of the dying process uh, by a a third party. So the focus here then is what these many people are referring to as active euthanasia. This is somebody who is, uh, it's precisely what you just said. Yes. Okay. And again, as I emphasized before with you, the focus of this manuscript and this podcast is not someone where we are focusing on either palliative care or withdrawal of support. Uh, While while the article is not predicated on that idea, the uh, precipitant, the direct precipitant of the article was the uh, publication of the Ethicus study that demonstrated uh, that some clinicians in uh, Europe were accelerating uh, the dying process actively, and they were doing it in in a conscious fashion. They were aware they were doing it. Uh, To the extent that that's true, in Europe, I, I thought that was a an appropriate stepping stone to considering the, the concept of whether it is or is not uh, appropriate to ex- accelerate death for somebody who is otherwise uh, dying uh, irretrievably 
uh, and suffering. Well, let me just let me just interrupt again for clarification for the listeners, and I'm going to read in a little section of your paper, and then you can make some comments. Mm-hmm. A follow-up to the end-of-life practices in the European Intensive Care Unit study, Ethicus, suggests that clinicians intended to therapeutically expedite death in up to 18% of patients whose life-sustaining therapies were withdrawn. Ethicus investigators reported that active shortening of the dying process, a term borrowed from previous studies, was often difficult to distinguish from therapies intended to relieve pain and suffering because clinicians' intentions are, quote, are often difficult to ascertain. Experts have argued that while medications used to achieve comfort may accelerate death, the clinician's intent is the bright line that separates permissible palliative care from shortening the dying process that is prohibited in most jurisdictions. So maybe if you could uh, use that as the stepping point. Well, I think um, uh, that what's bothersome about that, obviously, uh, is that, that some clinicians have decided that hastening the dying process was acceptable, that it was an, an appropriate thing to do, but they, were, they, but they appear to be doing it uh, without the explicit uh, consent uh, of the individual or the surrogate and of the uh, support uh, of the state uh, in, in allowing such a, a practice to occur. I think the, the, the whole idea here is that we need to have a reasoned conversation as a society uh, and come to some conclusions about these things, the way the people of Oregon, Washington, and now Montana uh, have. And I think we need to, to kind of peel back the, the layers so we can understand both the intuitive and rational uh, arguments for and against so that both clinicians and uh, citizens can uh, deliberate. Well, let me, let me just jump in, I think, just to try and keep it concrete. The American College of Physicians and the American Medical Association have stated clearly, and you quote this in your article multiple times, that physician-assisted death and euthanasia are inappropriate. Uh, and that, as you and I discussed before, if I were recently diagnosed with a terminal illness and came to a physician and said, I want you to end things now because I want to be in control of when I pass, I'm either mentally ill and depressed and you need to treat my depression, or I haven't received adequate palliative care. And I thought one of the brilliant areas of your manuscript was to say, well, Rich, you know, there are going to be a small cadre of people who will not be mentally ill and will not be and will have received appropriate palliative care. What about those people? And so maybe if you could talk about that. Yeah, that's precisely uh, the the argument, because uh, I suspect, judging from the Oregon experience, the numbers of people we're talking about are very, very small. Uh, that that uh, um, who who fall through the uh, palliative therapy and uh, uh, typical palliative therapy is not sufficient to relieve their suffering. I believe there's also some people uh, whose um, need for control and whose whose need to practice liberty at the end of life is also at play. I think the the, the attorney that I mentioned to you is probably one of those people. Um, I I believe. Um, that at the end of the day, um, we uh, currently in the 47 states uh, have mandates against honoring the wishes of those few people. And part of my thought experiment was to examine uh, why that might be so and whether it was founded on rational um, uh, thought or whether it was somehow uh, predicated on uh, intuition, religion, 
uh, and uh, uh, the evolution of actual Western uh, uh, ju- uh, jurisprudence. There's a historical issue, and this is different from philosophy, but the historical issue not that long ago of Nazi Germany, a highly organized society, the epitome of Western civilization, using the term euthanasia as a euphemism for ethnic cleansing. And so it's one of the reasons why this, and again, to use the term bright line, to separate out physicians' involvement in something like this, emphasizing one of the terms that you use, that physicians need to be 100% incentive to benefit and 0% to harm them. And yet, as you and I have talked about previously, if not doctors, helping these small cadre of patients, then who? Who better than physicians? And this is where you start to get into these moral conundrums, right? I think, that, uh, I think that's true. Uh, the, 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 I think it behooves us as physicians to consider uh, these uh, issues more generally uh, so we can decide for ourselves uh, what our stance is um, and to, to actually name from whence it comes, uh, whether it's a primarily religious issue, whether it's a primarily uh, uh, intuited, I just think this is wrong and I can't tell you why. But irrespective, there's, there is a, a, a group of people uh, who may or may not be in need of this, and we have to decide, A, if we live in a jurisdiction where it's allowed, would it be something that we'd be able to, to provide for our patients, and B, uh, whether we think it's, it's right or wrong and something that physicians should be involved in at all. Clearly, uh, in the states uh, that I've mentioned and in the countries that are mentioned in the article, uh, there has been a uh, consensus that physicians are the best situated uh, to be involved. However, it's also worth noting that no physician is compelled to provide such a thing that physicians by their own conscience can opt out of being involved in this process. And by the way, the process is also extremely careful. It's not like a patient can suddenly come to the conclusion that they no longer want to live with a terminal illness and just suddenly ask for a prescription for medication so that they can die peacefully. Rather, there is a lengthy process of vetting uh, ruling out uh, exhaustion of palliative care, et cetera, that's, that's very important to the, uh, to the, to the process. So it's, it's the, the, the citizenry of those uh, jurisdictions, I think, created, uh, or at least in Oregon, have created a, a thoughtful way of going about this. And again, clearly much controversy was generated about this, although although there was consensus in those states, certainly within our critical care community, there is much room for discussion. So what I, what I wanted to do next was to give you an opportunity to discuss with the members of SCCM uh, who, who may not have read it or who are interested in hearing more about it, your discussion, which I thought was very articulate, about this moral intuition versus moral reasoning and... I'm going to give the example of the trolley metaphor, which was right in there, and I'm going to try and describe it and see if I can get it right. But you emphasize, so a train is going down a track, and there's a fork, and it's going to be going down to kill five people. And you have an opportunity to flip a switch, and it would only kill one person going down the other side. You emphasize that most people do that, but that there is a moral difference uh, intuitively, if you say, well, now you have to push one person onto the track to save five. And I thought I understood that, but this concept of how you then take that to the next level, I thought I'd give you an opportunity to talk about. Well, 
I think the, the moral psychologists uh, have suggested that the trolley metaphor is an example. It's a metaphor for exactly this type of a intuitive uh, moral judgment that we make, but we have difficulty explaining. Uh, when when they went back and they asked the uh, respondents in these experiments uh, to, to explain why the two are different, they had a lot of difficulty to do it. They just they felt one was substantially different than the other, despite the fact that the result was exactly the same. And I, personally, I, I actually think that there are some substantial differences between those two situations. One, one involves direct contact with an individual, the other with an inanimate object. But so, so, so you can make the you could make the observation that there really is a difference. But let's say, for the sake of argument, that that these ideas of moral intuition—that is, immediate snap, first takes—we have on. Uh, moral questions is is right and and th- there's apparently some uh, growing school of neuroimaging uh, people who are actually looking at these things to try to help understand exactly what actual neurocircuitry is involved in it again outlined in the science article but i believe that th- it's not uncommon and and you uh, you probably had the experience yourself of of, of having an initial gut reaction to a question, but then taking the time to think about it more completely and rationally, you might come to an opposite conclusion. Well, I think that that's the, the, the difference between this gut uh, concept, this intuition concept, that some would suggest is inherited as part of our, of our um, human inheritance, of our, ge- of our, um, of our neurocircuitry, and, and that that some of those concepts that are hardwired into our brain have adaptive advantage. Now, for example, the concept that, you know, thou shalt not kill is both a reason concept and a, and, and a gut concept. But, but, the, but, the, but the gut concept, the immediate, the immediate intuition, is, is, is clear for most people. There are very few cultures in which uh, people can be asked that question, and a majority of them would say, yeah, no, that's, uh, it's, it's perfectly fine. And, you know, from a teleologic perspective, you can, you can uh, picture a scenario uh, that society and human uh, propagation would be unsustainable if a large number of the people in that tribe uh, believed in that concept, uh, because you would have chaos and lack of cooperation that might be necessary for propagation. And so the argument is that you know, over eons of time, those traits that were evolutionarily adaptive became hardwired in neurocircuitry in our brains that then became softwired into our religions and into our, our jurisprudence uh, to enunciate what was already in our brains. And so I think that is a not uh, untenable explanation of how we've come to have these uh, immediate gut responses versus the reasoned responses. There's other examples. Uh, I think to keep focused on not necessarily the philosophical argument, but again, to, for the average practicing either clinician or intensivist, is, for example, uh, prisoners who were sentenced to death by lethal injection. I know you didn't bring that up in your article. But again, the role of physicians being involved to make sure that it goes well. The, the, the crux is the physician's involvement in proximity to someone passing, dying, and to the extent that it is necessary because physicians are considered the people who should be involved in making sure that, that in the case of people um, asking for physician-assisted death, that it's done properly 
and with dignity and with appropriate agreed-upon protocols. And in the example of, of prisoners being sentenced to death, again, similar arguments that I've seen in the New England Journal of Medicine that it becomes an end-of-life issue. Uh, your point is that for many physicians, there will be an intuitive revulsion and rather that potentially physicians should put that aside for a second and see if there is a reasoned argument as to why it may be acceptable. Is that is that reasonable? I think that's 100% accurate. Uh, and in my own thought experiment, uh, I did exactly that, and I still can't explain why I couldn't do it. So in my responses uh, to the uh, letters to the editor, I uh, clarify that even despite kind of thinking through this carefully, uh, challenging my own beliefs, I still can't explain it, but I know it's not something I could do even for my best friend if he asked for it, because I, uh, it just seems uncomfortable for me, and I, I can't tell you precisely why. I, I did want to read uh, a couple of concluding paragraphs from your manuscript, because I thought they were excellent and, and just helped to crystallize some of these. I mean, I... It's complicated. That's the whole point, is when you have a discussion like this, the point is it's complicated. And your point is it may be even more complicated than our intuition. So let me just read here. So for the moment, let the reader suspend gut revulsion to shortening the dying process, physician-assisted death, and euthanasia. At this point in our moral history, the words themselves are polarizing. If test subjects in the trolley experiment are asked whether they would flip a switch to slaughter one to save five, the frequency of responses will certainly differ. Similarly, the words euthanasia and physician-assisted death cause gut reactions that are independent of the rational credibility of the arguments. Nature, i.e. our hardwired discomfort with promoting death, is amplified by nurture, i.e. religious, medical, and legal prohibitions. Words trigger neurologic phenomenon that correlate with two moral tenets. In this way, deliberations might benefit from alternative terminology, say, physician-assisted death from irreversible suffering. Um, and then just one last thing I want to read and then let you make some uh, concluding comments. If our role as physicians is to treat patients as a bundle of organs, then shortening the dying process should remain anathema to our values. However, if our role is to treat the patient as an abstract entity that includes body and soul, and if we truly believe that autonomy should be respected, then we might consider examining more carefully beyond our intuition and indoctrination whether our collective repudiation of shortening the dying process is justified. So thank you for that. I think the, um, the, the, the reality as I've, as I've uh, uh, experienced it now since writing this article and experienced this past weekend where the terms uh, euthanasia uh, were used to uh, whip up people against health care reform uh, when, in fact, the, the health care reform has nothing to do with euthanasia, is a perfect example of how words can be used to, to uh, literally inflame a situation and to manipulate people to act in ways that are wholly irrational, uh, even, beyond, even, even to, to advocate against their better interests. Uh, and and the, the the issue here is that there's no doubt that that those words uh, euthanasia and physician assisted suicide suicide itself has negative uh, connotations and um, the idea of of suggesting that perhaps you know the uh, that what the, the the difference here is the difference between choice 
that is the choice of the individual and respecting the autonomy of the individual versus causing death, I think are two uh, diametrically opposed views of the same concept, of of the same actual uh, process. I, uh, I, it was suggested by, by several of the, the people who wrote letters to the editor that, you know, that physicians who provide this in, uh, in Oregon and other jurisdictions that allow it are doing, are doing evil to, to patients, that they're doing aggression to patients. Uh, it's clear, it's, it's very unlikely that those people actually believe that, that the physicians uh, that I know provide uh, care for patients in the, in the hope of of allaying their suffering and and uh, maximizing their well-being. And I seriously doubt that, in fact, they view it as aggression and uh, that they are actively harming uh, another individual. I understand also I respect very much uh, the, the, the opposing side of, of uh, that, that people's view that this is harm, uh, that, that by causing their death, you are, you are, you are harming them. And I think that that is, is, a, is, a, is an, uh, just as viable and just as strong a belief and also needs to be respected. In fact, at the end of the day, so few people probably would require or would want this uh, or would request this. I, require is the wrong word, but would request it because Oregon's experience suggests it's very, very few people that it may not be worth it as a society to go down this path. That the that the inherent risks of this, the slippery slope or the inappropriate use uh, in in some disadvantaged uh, folks. Uh, might might not even vaguely approach that uh, the the harm that could be done, and so I think at the end of the day, we we as a society might think about it and say, you know what, the the the, the potential good that is honoring the autonomy of so few is far outweighed uh, by the the harm it would cause to 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 uh, if it became abused, and the risk for abuse is real, but at the same time. Uh, you can't have that kind of deliberative discussion if people are yelling at each other and 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 refusing to open their minds to the opposite uh, point of view because because at the end of the day democracy works through a deliberative process of of open discussion not of uh, coercion this has been amazing, Dr. Mathis. So I, I wanted to make two concluding points. Uh, the first was I, I had an opportunity to spend some time in New Haven myself in my younger years, and I remember one of my professors telling me, I don't care so much what you think, but that you think. And and the second point is you've clearly struck a nerve. This was bubbling beneath the surface given the impassioned response uh, by other members of our critical care community. And so further thought will will clearly continue And I'm really, really glad you took the time to uh, be with us today on the podcast. We've been speaking today with Dr. Constantine A. Manthus. He's the director of the medical ICU at Bridgeport Hospital. He's the head of the residency program there, and he is an associate professor of medicine at the Yale University School of Medicine in New Haven, Connecticut. And we've been discussing his extremely important article recently published in Critical Care Medicine on the topic of physician-assisted death. Thank you so much. Well, thank you very much as well. This concludes another edition of the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. Please check out our website at www.sccm.org slash iCriticalCare for more information, as well as full access to over four years of archived podcasts. 
For the Eye Critical Care Podcast, I'm Dr. Richard Savell. The Paragon Critical Care Quality Implementation Program offers hospitals an unparalleled opportunity to benefit from the experiences of peer leaders dedicated to critical care performance improvement. Through the use of engaging tools provided by SCCM and others, Paragon utilizes a combination of self-assessment, teleconferences, site visits, peer collaboration, consulting, and coaching to help hospitals develop high-functioning critical care teams. Hospitals interested in becoming a Paragon participant to positively transform their critical care units should contact Lori Harmon, RRT, MBA, Paragon Critical Care Manager, at 1-847-493-6403 or via email at lharmon at sccm.org. The iCritical Care Podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. Your host is the Society's Associate Editor for Podcasts, Richard Savell, MD, FCCM. Dr. Savell is the Medical Co-Director of the Surgical Intensive Care Unit at Montefiore Medical Center in New York City practicing under the leadership of Vladimir Kavetin, MDFCCM. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email iCriticalCare at sccm.org or info at sccm.org.